For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. This to me is like the really fascinating material. I don't know what the answer is, but we're looking for patterns. I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy. The story slowly Still, a lot of people don't know that this technology actually exists. The possibilities here are pretty mind And record button has been pressed. Rolling, as they say in the industry. Yeah, we got Rob here. Hey, everybody. Rob Rob is back. We're back in Studio A. It hasn't all migrated to Studio B. Surfio <laughs> <laughs> hasn't bought everything in here yet. So. <laughs> I'm working on selling the rest, though. I'm looking around. <laughs> hey, he's doing some shopping. How you doing, Mr. Rob? I'm doing well. You know, staying busy. It's it's weird, man, because all I can see is like the top of your head now. I know. I'm buried behind my laptop and my <laughs> microphone with like cables everywhere. It's awesome. <laughs> As before, I'm I could in- like face you. Now <laughs> I have to look to the left and see like just the top of your just the top of your head. Well, it's better than the, the back. It used to be the back of my head though, because I was like, yeah, facing away with a computer station and everything. So this is yeah. much better. This is it is a little. I'm better. on the couch with you guys. I feel like we're friends. Yeah, yeah. We're just hanging out. Yeah, just a couple, just a few guys That's hanging right. out, shooting the shit. What's up, Mister Serfio? Nothing, man. Just going through it. Yeah, work week. We've I'm, been having those extensive discussions over dinner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Beyond Patreon level. Yeah, yeah. That's what you get when you, you we get into the 33rd degree of conspiratorial. $10,000 a month and up. Right. When <laughs> <laughs> everybody... Start recording ev- your dinner conversations. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've done that before, man. I'll do it. <laughs> um, we have the guest on the line, and I think that uh, this guest needs no introduction. 
We have Jenny Ashford, and we are going to talk about her book, The Faceless Villain, Part 2. Welcome back, Jenny, to Conspiracy. Hey, Jenny. Well, thank you for having me back. I always like doing this show. Awesome. Yeah, we we uh, we really love you guys' podcast. Um, Aww, we consider thanks. you guys kind of like a sister brother podcast, kind of. So and this um, is this is like what fourth or fifth time you've been on the show now? Yeah, yeah it's a yeah, lot. Is yeah, we've been yeah, I've been on here a lot of times. I think I've beat Soraya the matter the amount of times that I've had you guys on now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you might have, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> well, it's going to be a little different with this show, because last time we talked about your the first book of this series, The Faceless yeah. Villain, and this book is, it's a tome, and it is, yeah. it's two <laughs> decades, which actually, the 60s and the 70s, which is actually perfect. Because as I was reading it, I was thinking, there's no way I'm going to be able to get through this entire book. So my idea has been tonight we are going to do about the 60s. And then later on, a few shows down the road, we're going to come back and hit the 70s. Yeah, and that'll, that'll be good. That'll be good. Yeah, I figured that would be a good way. And we may, we may have to, if, if, for part three... Like, what's it going to cover primarily in years? Because I know there's going to be a part three. Yeah, that'll be 1980 to 1999. Okay. Part three will be, yeah. Are you going to hit the 21st century? I may do that sometime down the line. I'm also kind of considering maybe doing a trilogy, you know, maybe a year or two in the future about mysterious disappearances rather than unsolved Uh murders. But we'll see how that goes. That's one that I'm kind of like considering. Also, but we'll see. Yeah, there is kind of an element of that in some of these cases because some of them start out as as people just mysteriously disappearing. Yeah, and, and there are a few disappearances. Found. Yeah, there are a few disappearances in here. Um, I usually put a disappearance in if it was uh, famous enough that, and you know, to the point where people would know that it was probably a murder. Um, or also if it was, uh, related to some other crimes, like in a particular series. And even if they never found the body, they're thinking, well, all the other people in this series, they found dead and this person just disappeared. But, you know, so I would include the disappearances then, but I don't know. I I think a a series just about disappearances might be interesting too, but we'll see. i you know, I'm thinking about, that's one of the things I'm thinking about for a project in a year or two. Excellent. Yeah. We'll be definitely looking forward to that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, just for people that haven't heard this before, or maybe haven't heard the first part, what's kind of you, what was your criteria for these cases? Most of the time, I mean, I was trying to compile uh, the cases that were unsolved and also that had some kind of mysterious element to them, um, particularly crimes that were just random. Um, so I, I tended to steer clear of, you know, murders that they were like, well, we're pretty sure who did it, but we couldn't prove it. Or maybe it was a family member, or maybe it was just like a mob hit, or maybe it was just a robbery gone wrong or something like that. It's like a few of the cases in there do have that aspect, but most of the ones that I wanted to compile in the book were ones that had like weird details or where the murder was just like completely random. There was like no reason for it really. And they really had no idea who could have done it or why they, 
you know, why they pulled it off in such a fashion. You know what I mean? It's like someone coming into a house and massacring an, an entire family and, you know, nothing is taken from the house. Like there doesn't seem to be any reason for it. And that was kind of the criteria that I use for most of the cases. It was kind of a hard, it was, it was kind of hard to decide what to put in. I mean, some of them I definitely knew that I wanted to put in, but you know, at some point when I got up to so many pages, I was sitting there thinking, well, some of these I have to leave out because, you know, this book is going to be a thousand pages and I'm never going to finish it. Yeah. So, you know, some of the things I just had to leave out if there wasn't a lot of details about it. But, you know, I'm so into this stuff and I'm so fascinated by this stuff that it was really hard uh, for me to leave things on the cutting room floor. But eventually I had to and I had to just say, you know, I have to kind of keep to my theme. Whereas like, you know, these are creepy cases, you know, there's creepy details. They have no idea who did this. Some of the, some of the crimes, they don't even know who the victim is. Like the victim is unidentified. So I wanted to keep kind of that mysterious element in the ones that I left in the book. There were some of the crimes where, and it was kind of frustrating to read, not from what, not from what you were writing, but just the way the, the crime had been set out yeah. of where it was almost like it was, it's obvious it's this person. Yeah. Like there was one case in point where you had like, I can't remember. I think it was another one of the Iowa cases. Yeah. That, there were a lot. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of Iowa going on. I don't know what's, <laughs> what's up with that, but we'll get to that. But the, the one that was, that got to me was like, this girl that was found dead in a hotel room and the hotel room had been registered to this guy, but the police said they didn't have enough evidence. Yeah. Like that's your evidence. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, you know, I can see where they're coming from because they're like, even if this goes to trial, we don't have enough evidence. They're not going to be able to prove it. Like a good defense attorney will get them off and it doesn't seem worth the time or the money. So, I can see things from that point of view too, but it is very frustrating from a researching point of view because you're sitting there going, well, obviously, you know, it was probably that person. I mean, maybe it wasn't, it did not necessarily, but you know, in all likelihood, it was probably that person. But as I said, you know, they only have limited resources and they're like, look, if we don't have a slam dunk case, if we don't have, you know, forensic evidence, we don't have this, that, and the other thing, then they're not going to pursue it because they're like, they're just going to get off and it's just going to be a waste of time and everyone's going to be frustrated. So, you know, I can see how that goes. And, and I kind of get that. It's one of the things that I worried about when I was first thinking about doing this series that I was like, well, you know, by their very nature, unsolved murders, they're all unsolved. So, you know, every single story that's in this is going to have an unsatisfying ending because they never caught the person that did it and they still don't know, um, you know, otherwise it wouldn't be in the book. So that, that was one thing that I was kind of afraid of that people would be reading it and be like, well, and then what? And I'm like, well, nobody knows. That's kind of the whole yeah. of it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and you had originally included the East area rapist material in the book, didn't you? I had, I had that out of my notes. Yeah. But then while I was working on it, before I got to the section that he was going to be in, uh, they actually did catch him allegedly. Uh, you know, I know he hasn't been convicted yet, but, uh, you know, the DNA evidence came up, uh, against, uh, Joseph G- D'Angelo. So I was like, well, I, it's like, I don't really want to leave it all in there just because, 
you know, for a long time, he was like, oh, he's the, the original Night Stalker. I mean, we even did a podcast about him before he was caught. Yeah. And that was actually one of our most popular shows. And everybody had, you know, we had theories about where he was and other people came on and had theories about it. And then finally they caught the guy. And then I was like, well, I guess he can't be in the book anymore, <laughs> you know, because now they know who he is. And like the mystery is kind of gone, which I know that's kind of a messed up thing to say, but you know, they did finally catch him. And it was, it was the same thing with the show we just did um, on 13 o'clock about the NorCal rapist. People had been ask, asking us to do that topic for a really long time. Cause I mean, he did a whole bunch of uh, rapes. Well, they only know of like 10 to 12, but I'm sure there were more that started in like 1991. And then for a long time, he was just like this phantom or this boogeyman and they didn't know who he was. So we had all these requests like you do the NorCal rapist or the, do the NorCal rapist. And we hadn't got around to it. And then like last week, I think it was September 24th, they arrested him like they found him through DNA, just like they did the Golden State Killer. So we're was like, it, well, now was we it have from to like check. family research also like the Ancestry.com that got the other guy. Yes, it was. It was wow. it was through the GED match website. They had some uh, DNA from one of the crime scenes where the victim had actually um, gotten loose from her bonds and stabbed him in the arm with a pair of scissors. And uh, there were some bloodstains in her apartment that belonged to him. And they uh, they uploaded the DNA to the GED match site, just like they did the Golden State Killer. And there was a relative. They haven't specified which relative it was, but they eventually worked their way back to him. So I'm presuming it was something of a distant relative, but they did find him. So I've got an unopened ancestry.com kit at home <laughs> that my sister got me for my, for like my birthday last year, but I want to snitch on my relatives who might've done something. So I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, man, if my, if my, one of my relatives was the NorCal rapist, yeah, I think that's, I, that's I, different. I that's, yeah, yeah. 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 But you know, yeah, so, you know. feel weird. I think we're going to, I think we're going to see more of that happening. Yeah. yeah, they're trying to catch the Zodiac like that, too. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. That's going to be the next thing. I was in, We just did a show about the Zodiac a couple weeks ago, and I was just uh, kind of like, wouldn't that wouldn't that be a bitch if they actually caught him in our lifetime? Just, that would be something. I don't I know. I see think, what that guy looks like. But we all know who it is. Oh, yeah, Ted Cruz. <laughs> 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 I think the Zodiac's dead, but maybe. I think he you probably know. is, too. Yeah. Um. Of course, my conspiracy theory is that it's two guys, but that's neither here nor there. It very well may be. Yeah. Um, you know, there were a lot of crimes that were kind of similar, and I do feel like he probably took uh, credit for stuff he didn't do right. just to make it seem like he was more. And we talked about that a little bit in our show, and Tom was saying, I think he's one of those guys where he killed four or five people and then he got lazy. And then uh, he'd look in the newspaper and see a murder and be like, yeah, I did that one. Well, the, the way he bragged about everything, he was just, that's what it was all about was the, the publicity and everything. You yeah. Know. He, the I think he got off more on that than the killing in itself. So he seemed to. So really. that's why, I mean, you know, his last murder was, you know, many, many years before he, he just kept sending letters like to the press and to the police and stuff like that. I know some of the later ones are probably, were not authenticated and they might be someone else, but, you know, he did really keep. You know, he wanted to keep his name in the news. That seemed like all he was worried about. Yeah, what was the one that uh, Cherry Joe Bates? That's the one that could have been him more than likely. Yeah, he all, he sort of obliquely took uh, credit for that, although yeah. he didn't say it outright, really. But when she was murdered, it, I mean, it was several years before his spree began, but... Um, 
apparently there were still there were similar letters like sent to the press and I believe to her father, um, you know, taking credit for the murder. She wasn't murdered the same way as uh, most of the later the canonical victims. But some people have I mean, she is kind of listed as possible as a possible victim. Well, since we're on this topic, uh, the Zodiac killer, you do talk about some that. I don't know if this is from your own speculation or other speculation that there's a possibility that there's a few of these murders that could have been like, kind of like the Zodiac killer before he became the Zodiac killer. Yeah, there were actually, it's weird because there were actually a few like lovers lane style murders. Um, you know, there were some, there was the Domingos Edwards murder. Um, you know, that was Robert Domingos and, uh, Linda Edwards. There was uh, Larry Payton and Beverly Allen, um, Johnny and Joyce Swindle. And all these happened like many years before the Zodiac apparently started killing people. But they were all kind of similar. They all kind of took place, um, you know, two of them took place in sort of lover's lane areas. And it was the same kind of thing where like this person just came up and like shot a couple sitting in their car. Um, Johnny and Joyce Swindle were actually in California. I believe they're in San Diego and they were walking down the beach at night. They were on their honeymoon and someone just sniped them like from a seawall, uh, some distance away and then came up and, you know, shot them from close range. Um, so it's odd how many of those types of murders there were. And I talked a little bit about this on our Zodiac case too, that, a couple of the, or one of the suspects, particularly in the um, in the Peyton Allen murder, Edward W. Edwards, um, he seems like a pretty decent candidate uh, for the Zodiac, or at least d- done some of the Zodiac killings, because he was actually convicted, you know, much later, of doing two Lovers Lane murders. You know, he did uh, the Sweetheart murders. That was like, I believe that was 1977 or 1978. That was Tim Hack and Kelly Drew. And he did another murder like that, too. And they kind of suspect that he sort of moved around the country and was kind of into doing these Lover's Lane type killers where he would just, you know, shoot a couple sitting in their car. So it seemed strange to me that he was convicted of doing two murders like that. And he was a suspect in some earlier Lover's Lane type killings that happened before the Zodiac one started. And it's weird. They didn't really consider him. They considered him a suspect. Like they did pick him up, uh, I believe for the, for the Peyton Allen murders, but they were just sort of like, Oh, well we have some stronger suspects and they just kind of let him skate. Um, and then he sort of moved around the country and he kind of went missing and stuff. But it, it does seem like he doesn't get brought up a lot. Uh, when people are talking about Zodiac suspects, like every now and then he does. But to me, he seems, you know, I, I don't know if he did it or not, but he does seem to warrant more scrutiny is, is what I'll say. <laughs> What's well, the um, Arthur was it Arthur Lee Allen. Who was the, uh, the main suspect? Yeah. And, and actually I've heard it argued that, Arthur Lee Allen was only the main suspect because of the Robert Graysmith books. And it seemed like some people have speculated that Graysmith might have sort of massaged some of the evidence to make it seem like Arthur Lee Allen was the suspect. Cause even when they made that, that movie in 2007, I think it was yeah. based on his books, 
they definitely did make it seem like Arthur Leal, well, oh, well, obviously it's that guy. But some of the later DNA evidence um, didn't match him. And, you know, the the fingerprints they took from some of the scenes didn't match. The palm print they took from some of the scenes didn't match. Uh, some of the DNA that they had, um, they actually had some prints from Paul Stein's cab. Uh, you know, he was the fifth victim. Mm-hmm. And that didn't match him either. Yeah, that was the last victim, right? The cab yeah, driver? That they, yeah. yeah, that they know of. Yeah, the cab driver. And so... I don't know. Like when I first started researching the Zodiac, I was kind of like, oh, well, obviously, you know, he lived in the air like he lived very near uh, a lot of the victims. He was probably at or near Lake Berryessa, you know, on the same day as the attacks. You know, he's he wore the same size shoe as the footprints. You know, he had some weird. Oh, the most dangerous game is my favorite story and all this other stuff. But in some ways, it it almost seemed like he was trying to not get caught for it necessarily, but maybe he was obliquely trying to claim credit for it more than actually, you know, him being a suspect because the more I looked into it and the more I looked into like forensic evidence and stuff, it it just seemed like I, I kind of got less and less convinced that it was him. It's funny because I was just watching a really, it was a fairly recent documentary and it was about, um, Cause you know how the, you know, the funny thing about the Zodiac, cause he's so famous and he's so uncaught. So everybody comes out and they're just like, Oh, my dad is the Zodiac. Oh, my brother-in-law is the Zodiac. You know what I mean? Everyone's got a book out about it. Um, you know, Steve Hodell, who wrote the black Dahlia Avenger, uh-huh. right. he wrote that book later called most evil where he said, Oh, and by the way, my dad, not only did he kill the black Dahlia, he also is the Zodiac and he also killed those other people. And I was like, Oh, well you were so close. And then you just kind of went off. <laughs> you just kind of went off into the stratosphere, but there was one uh, book that came out and this one guy was talking about his stepdad, Jack Terrence. And I kind of looked into that a little bit. And that sounds kind of legit. I mean, he says that he didn't realize, he said, you know, I knew his stepfather's dead, but he's like, I, you know, he was kind of a jerk. He was kind of violent and stuff growing up, but I didn't really think anything of it. But after he died, I was going through his things and I found an executioner's hood that looked very much like the one used at the Lake Berryessa attack. Mm. And so he's like, so I started looking more into it and, um, you know, the way he talked and I kind of looked into it, I was like that, you know, that could be. And apparently uh, the authorities are taking it at least somewhat seriously and are looking into the background of the guy. I mean, like I said, I don't you know, I don't know. I've just looked into it. Did briefly, it have but, the symbol on it? Um, I don't know if it did or not. Uh, yeah. It looked like it did, like in the shot that I saw. But I don't know if that was a reconstruction. Huh. So I'm kind of like, well, that sounds kind of, I mean. Like I said, it had to be somebody. So, you know, it's, it could have been somebody's stepdad. Sure. So, you know, I'm I'm kind of skeptical just because so many people have come. I think there was, a, there was even a woman that came out several years ago and said that her dad was the Zodiac killer, too. So, you know, anytime somebody comes out and says one of their relatives is the Zodiac, I'm naturally skeptical. But... This guy sounded like he had a little bit more on the ball. So, I don't know. We'll see how that goes. But the the more I the more I looked into it, the more I was convinced that it probably was not Arthur Lee Allen. And I know that's maybe is that a controversial thing to say? I'm not really sure. But I'm just I'm less convinced that it's him now than I used to be. Yeah. 
It's it's definitely interesting. That's why I kind of go back to that. It might have been at least two people because yeah. maybe Arthur Lee Allen did some of them, and maybe somebody else did another. You know, like did these yeah, guys were I, just freaks, and they were just into hunting people. You know, like just like it's just just these freakos just find each other somehow. You know. Yeah, I mean, it does happen. It's rare, but, the, you know, every now and then they you do the, get this kind of synergy with these people and they come together and say, hey, let's go out and kill people and we'll we'll be a team, a killing team. Yeah. And, you know, and, it, you know, so it's it's perfectly legitimate. It totally could happen. It totally could happen. Let's get into some of these uh, cases. Um, okay. Lake Boda murders. Yes. This... This is probably one of the more famous ones in the book. I, you know, I think this is one of the ones that I had actually heard of a lot and kind of turns up in a lot of YouTube videos and stuff like that, um, as a lot of mass murders do. But this actually happened in 1960 in Finland. Um, you know, I, I don't have a lot of uh, mass murders from other countries in my books just because it's easier uh, to gather materials from English speaking countries. Yeah. But the, the Lake Bodum murders are so famous that it's like, you know, there's English uh, translations of stuff that happened all over the place. But this actually happened in uh, June of 1960. And it was four teenagers. Uh, the boys were 18 and their girlfriends were 15. And they were going to go on a camping trip. And they got on the boys' motorcycles, you know, the girls got on the back, and they went up to, and they set up their tent and everything. Now, at some point overnight, no one's entirely sure what happened, but someone, unknown, uh, approached the campsite and cut the ropes on the tent, and the canvas fell in on them, and then they proceeded to beat and stab uh, everyone to death, except... The one guy, Nils Gustafsson, he actually lived. He was wounded in the attack. Um, he had he was uh, hit with a blunt object on the back of the head, and um, I believe he also had his jaw broken from being kicked. But he actually lived. So this, you know, th- this was such a strange. This was such a strange case because so three of them are dead. Uh, Nils Gustafsson is still alive, but he says, I don't remember what happened. I just remember waking up and seeing like some figure over me and they even, they hypnotized him. They did all this other stuff and he couldn't remember anything. So, you know, there were a few weird things like Nils's girlfriend at the time, whose name was, uh, Myla, She was actually the worst. Um, she had the worst injuries. She'd been stabbed like way more than any, than any of the others. And she was found without her, uh, shirt, and stuff. Um, they also found the motorcycles weirdly were still at the campsite, but the keys were gone. So, and actually they never did find the keys. So, uh, the only other weird thing was that they found when they found Nils, he was wounded and they, he was barefoot, like laying on top of the tent. And then they found his bloody shoes, like under a hedge, like about 500 yards from the campsite. So they thought that was a little odd. And so they, they look into the crime and they're like, they're kind of trying to determine who are some people in the area that, you know, have violent criminal tendencies or whatever. So there was, uh, there was a few suspects. They had a guy named, uh, Penty Soaninen and he, um, 
kind of lived in the area and was kind of, you know, violently criminal. And he apparently confessed to it, but they don't know if that was legit or not because he kind of had some mental problems. Um, he ended up committing suicide about nine years later. And then there was this other guy and, you know, his name's Hans Asman, Poor guy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which made me... Maybe not poor guy, because maybe he's a murderer. But um, I actually, he came up in volume one of The Faceless Villain because he was also a suspect in mm. the murder of Kailiki Sari, who was riding her bicycle home from like a church function or something like that. And she disappeared and then they found her dead later on. Um, she was 17. So apparently this this guy, this Asman guy, uh, was acting kind of weird, like on the morning of the Lake Bodum murders, like he showed up in some hospital and some people said he gave them a fake name and he was like covered in blood and stuff. And he was acting really weird. Um, but he was also kind of crazy. He had like all these weird stories about, um, Oh, I used to be in the SS and I was a guard at Auschwitz and then I got captured by the Soviets and now I'm a spy for the KGB and all this other stuff. And no one knows how true any of that is. So he was also a suspect um, there was also a guy named uh, Carl Gilstrom, and he actually had a store in a nearby town. And apparently uh, all his friends, and I guess this is kind of a funny thing to know about a guy, but he apparently really, really hated campers. And he was always talking about how much he hated them. <laughs> and so hmm. some people thought, well, maybe he hated them enough to kill a bunch of them. So, you know, so he was kind of looked into, too. And uh, apparently his neighbor said he got drunk one night and said that he had committed the crime. So and he said, oh, I dropped them all. You know, I, I took the evidence and I dropped it down a well on my property and then I had it like cemented over. So but, you know, like I said, they don't know how legitimate that is either. But apparently that guy was like later on, they they kind of searched his land and everything and they didn't find anything. But then he actually committed suicide also, and he committed suicide by jumping into Lake Bodum and drowning himself. Mm. So I thought that was a little strange because that was where, you know, that was where the right. crime had occurred. So then it's like nothing happens on the case. And then this kind of like this wigged me out. Nothing happens on the case until 2004. And at this point, the authorities say, okay, well, we've taken the shoes that we found, that Nils Gustafsson's shoes, and they were found at the scene, like underneath a hedge, and they had blood on them. And at the time in 1960, they couldn't determine whose blood it was. But apparently, they did tests on the shoes, and they were like, okay, well, the blood came from the three other victims, but not from Nils. So maybe Nils was the killer. And then they kind of con you know, concocted this whole story where, okay, well, him and his friend Seppo Boisman, the other guy, like they maybe got into a fight because of jealousy or maybe they were all drinking or something. And then they got into a fist fight and then it escalated and then he just went nuts and killed everybody. So, you know, they, they were kind of like operating on that assumption. And they also pointed out they're like, oh, well, it was Nils's girlfriend who was the worst wounded. Like she was stabbed the most times. She was the only one that was left half naked. So, so like, you passion know, kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Like, so they said that seems like overkill. So maybe he was the one that did it. So he actually ended up going to trial in 2005. Well, did they say that he also uh, inflicted harm on himself? 
to make it look. Yeah, which would have had to have been the case because he yeah. had a fairly bad injury to the back of his head, which to me seems difficult to do. I mean, it seems like if you're going to kill a bunch of people and then be like, okay, well, I better hurt myself so it looks like somebody else did it, you'd think you'd do something a little more easy to do, I guess. I don't know. But at any rate, they um, they ended up acquitting him. And actually, he got a pretty large settlement because he'd been in jail for a long time because I guess it was the remand time was like um, longer than usual. And he'd been sitting in prison, like waiting for trial, like longer than usual. And so he actually ended up getting a big settlement. But they actually couldn't prove that it was him that did it because, I mean, there were also from the time there were uh, there were two boys that had been bird watching in the area, like on the morning that the bodies were discovered and they had actually seen a blonde man like leaving the site, like at around 6 AM, I think it was. And so that guy was never identified. So they're like, well, that very well could have been the murderer. So obviously it couldn't have been Nils Gustafsson, but I, I, you know, I don't know if it was him or not, but it, you know, apparently the jury didn't think it was because he got acquitted. It does seem odd about the shoes, but you know, there could have been some other circumstance that, perpetrated that who knows but he you know he hadn't committed any other crimes in the in the years since he'd just been working as a bus driver and had a family and you know was just a normal guy Mm. so i don't know i don't know if i buy that he did it or not yeah that just seemed odd yeah the shoes seem weird but you know wasn't there a heavy metal band that uh children Children of bodom yes one of my favorites Yeah. Oh, really? Yep. They named them so well they're they're from the town where this happened. So uh which I think is called Espo. And uh, oh, okay. so, yeah. apparently a lot of their songs are about this crime. I think that's where so, J- so I think I've that's heard. where Jarmo's from. Our friend Jarmo who wrote Iron Sky. <laughs> really? I think he's from Espo. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah, they, uh, I'm pretty sure that's the name of the town where it happened. Cool. Let's uh yeah. let's get into some uh well, these these are kind of sad. Well, they're all sad. Yeah. Really, <laughs> the uh, the um, the Wanda Beach murders and the Beaumont children. This is Australia. Yeah, and these again, these are very very famous uh, cases. And we actually did we we actually did an episode of uh, of both of these because there there may be links between them. Uh, they're not entirely sure because the Beaumont children. Uh, is just a disappearance. They've never found the kids. And uh, the Wanda Beach murders, they did find the victims. But, yeah, this was a really sad case. And this happened in... Hold on, let me check my notes here a second. <laughs> I think I 65 sc- was Wanda Beach. Yeah, I, I got to scroll I gotta scroll through to all to my uh, notes. Because I wrote down the page numbers of all the stuff you want to talk about. Because, you know what I mean? Yeah, 1965. This was the two girls named Marion Schmidt and Christine Sherrick. And they were actually next door neighbors. And they would often go to this beach called Cronulla. And it took a while to get there by train. But I guess back in that back in those days, that was like the easiest beach to get to by train because the train was right by their house. So they used to go to Sydney, right? uh, Yeah, I think it was. uh, I believe it was actually. It's it's like, uh, yeah, Sydney, like right outside of Sydney. Okay. so they um, so they go to the beach all the time to Wanda Beach all the time. 
And so this one particular day, they take um, four of the little kids, the siblings, and they're all going to go to Wanda Beach for the day. So the weather turns out being kind of crappy. It's kind of windy. And so they get to the beach. The beach is closed. So they kind of have to sit behind this rock and they're like, oh, well, what are we going to do? Blah, blah, blah. And then so they all are like, well, let's like walk down more toward Wanda Beach and, you know, we'll hang out down there and see if the weather gets better. So the strange thing is they're there all day. And one of the younger siblings, Wolfgang, who I believe was eight years old at the time, he said that he saw this other boy on the beach he was like a teenager and he had like gray pants on and he didn't have a shirt and he had like a blue towel, like over his shoulder. And he said the first time that he saw him, he was like in the shallows, like catching crabs or something. And then later on, like he saw him two more times. So this kid is kind of a suspect for what happened later on. So they go to the other end of the beach. The two older girls, um, Marianne and Christine, they put the four kids into kind of this Lee of the Rock and they're like, okay, well, we're going to go back down and get our bags and then we'll come back and get you and then we'll go home because the weather's kind of crappy. But then they start walking in the opposite direction. So one of the younger siblings is like, hey, you're going the wrong way. And they're just like, yeah, whatever. And then they just kept on going. So they walk toward the Wanda Beach Sand Hills, which are kind of this. You know, I guess at the time, maybe it was known as something of kind of because it was kind of secretive and you couldn't really see it from the beach. So, you know, a lot of people would go up there to have sex and stuff like that. So they start walking toward that area. Now, at some point, um, some guy at the surf club who was there with his kids, he saw the two girls and he said they were walking really fast about 800 yards from the surf club. And they kept like looking behind them. Like they thought someone was chasing them. He's like, but I didn't see anybody chasing them. Now the younger kid Wolfgang also said that he saw the same boy that he had seen, uh, catching crabs earlier on. He said that was the same kid. I saw him kind of walking with the two girls later when they were walking toward the sand Hills and that he would kept asking them, what's your names? What's your names? And like, they wouldn't tell him. So then the kids are waiting there listening to the radio. And then finally they're like, okay, well we can't, you know, the girls haven't come back. They're like, we can't wait here anymore because we're going to miss the train. Like the last train was at 6 PM. So finally the, you know, the four little kids were like, okay, well we have to go get our bag. We have to take the train home. So they took the train all the way home and they were, they, you know, told, uh, I believe it was, uh, Christine's or Marianne's grandmother that, um, that they, the girls hadn't come back. So they, it was, they were reported missing. And then the following day, someone was walking along the beach and found both girls dead. Now they were kind of partially buried in the sand. He only kind of saw one hand sticking out and thought it was like a mannequin, which is that's something that comes up a lot. in mm -hmm. a lot of these crimes, it's like, I thought it was a mannequin. It's never a mannequin. It's always, always a dead body. Yeah. Yeah, which, you know, if you ever see anything on the side of the road and you think it's a mannequin, just it's a dead body. It pretty much always is. But that's the same thing. So they dug the two bodies out. Now, it looks like neither of the girls were raped, although it looked like an attempted rape, like the way they were laid out, because some of their, you know, their uh, swimsuits were kind of askew and things of that nature. So 
it looked like, um, and also there were traces of semen found on the bodies, almost like some, you know, like someone had tried, like it had attempted, but hadn't succeeded. Hmm. So there was also like this big, uh, drag mark discovered in the sand. So they figured one of the girls must've been attacked first. The other one tried to run away at which point the killer, you know, ran after her and then dragged her back and then killed her as well. Now they pretty much, they searched all over the place. They dug up all the sand around where the bodies were found. Pretty much all they found was like a little, uh, knife blade that had some old blood on it. But they weren't sure if this was related to the crime, like they could never link the forensic evidence to this actual crime or if it was from some older time period. Another thing they found when they were um, doing an autopsy on the two girls was that one of the girls, Christine, that she actually had um, a high, like a higher blood alcohol level. It wasn't really high, but it was just kind of like equivalent to a beer. And then the kids told the, the littler kids told police that, yeah, Christine like went off on her own for a little while, like at some point during the day. And we don't know where she went. She just like took off somewhere. So they presumed that she went somewhere and like drank a beer with somebody. They don't know. They don't know if the two girls went there to meet someone and didn't tell anyone about it. And this was the person that killed them. Or if perhaps there had just been some wandering psychopath, you know, who knows, but they, you know, they didn't mention anyone in particular. They didn't mention that they had boyfriends. They didn't mention anything to their family. They didn't mention anything and anything to their friends. So, you know, they, there were really a lot of, you know, question marks raised about why these two girls had turned up dead pretty much in the middle of the day. There was this one guy who had been kicked off the beach a couple of the times, uh, just for coming up to women on the beach and just making offensive comments and just, you know, making sexual comments. And the lifeguards had asked him to leave a couple of times, but this dude, uh, didn't look anything like, um, the suspect that Wolfgang described. He was like a right. younger like a teenage guy. Right. This guy was like an older, like balding kind of dude. So they, they weren't really looking at him as a suspect. They thought, well, maybe he saw something and he could tell us thing, but they never found that guy either. And another strange thing too, is that a lot of the main suspects in the case um, also didn't look like that kid. So I'm not really sure because the thing about Wolfgang Schmidt, he was Marianne's little brother. He was eight. And even though he claimed to have seen this kid like three times on that day, so they're presuming that this is their prime suspect, his story changed enough times, um, you know, not hugely, but enough that they were kind of like, well, maybe he didn't really say, like, see what he said he saw, or maybe he's too little, or, you know, whatever. So weirdly, a lot of the suspects in the crime, like one of the suspects was a guy named Christopher Wilder who actually I had heard of him because I think I saw him. I, maybe it was unsolved mysteries or one of those types of shows, mm -hmm. but he's actually known better as the beauty queen killer. And he actually went on yeah. a killing spree in the U S in the early eighties yeah. yeah. and then ended up getting shot by police. Like it was kind of a mass murder. He was like driving around killing people. And, um, I didn't realize, but he was actually from Australia originally. Did that happen in Florida? Uh, I didn't know. I don't, was it, was it Florida? I'd have I to look into it, it, but I, I could have <laughs> sworn it was the Northeast. Okay. Maybe but it was, I thought it was the Northeast, but I could be, wrong I know the it. case you're talking about. Yeah. 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 He was trying to get, he would tell girls he was taking their picture. 
Yeah, he would like yeah. go to malls and stuff. Yeah, that was like his MO. He would go to malls and be like, yeah, I'm a photographer. I'm this, not the other. But yeah, he was originally from Australia and he had been um, a suspect in a gang rape in Sydney, like back in the like early 60s, like 1963. And then later he moved to the United States and then went on his killing spree there. Um, you know, there were a couple other, you know, guys in the area, Derek Percy, who was um, actually convicted later of killing a little kid on a beach in Victoria. And um, so that was another one. There was a guy named Alan Bassett who was also a convicted killer. He had killed a 19 year old girl, uh, in 1966. But the reason they thought that he might have done it was because this, this seems so random to me, but he gave one of the investigators a painting that he had done. And the investigator thought that the painting was of the Wanda Beach crime scene, even though I've seen the painting and it doesn't, I don't know. I could, I could see how you could kind of think yeah. that if you squinted, but it really could be anything or anywhere. They were sitting there going, oh, well, look at the configuration of the blood on the grass leaves. And look, there's a hand sticking out of the sand and stuff. But it didn't look all that clear to me. I, I kind of feel like the investigator was maybe reading into stuff. But, you know, may, I could be wrong. Maybe I just saw a crappy print of the, of the uh, painting. Christopher Wilder, two of the victims, he was in Florida when he did it. Yeah, the beginning. Oh, okay. It began yeah. in Florida. So Yeah, okay, you're right. What did he do any of the Northeast or am I thinking of somebody else? Yeah. He eventually was, uh, when he was shot, it was New Hampshire. Okay. So that's what I was thinking of then. Okay, I yeah. can only remember like the end of the spree, like where he was, when he had a gas station or something like that. And yeah, like, he like, had a shoot. He was like, he was in a shootout, I think with the cops. Or yeah. Something. It was like, he was, he was getting out of his car and he was like trying to, they tried to catch him and he was like trying to, yeah, he got in some kind of shootout and they killed him. But yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that was kind of the thing with the Wanda Beach. And then later on, there was another case nearby. And this is three little kids who are just going to the beach one day. It was Glenelg Beach, actually, which is the same beach where the infamous Somerton man turned up dead, yeah. which we also did a show about. And that yeah. was in my first book, too. That guy that turned they thought he was maybe a spy or something because they found, like, all the tags were cut out of his clothes and stuff. But they just found him on Glenelg Beach. But this was actually the same beach, you know, many years later. And these three little kids, the Beaumont children, uh, Jane, Arna, and Grant, and they went to this beach all the time. They normally rode their bicycles. Uh, this particular day, they took a bus. And, you know, they went to the beach, and then they just never came home. And then it turned out later on that several witnesses on the beach who knew them said, oh, we saw the three kids. They were um, hanging out with this guy that was like maybe 30, something like that. He had like a pair of blue Speedos on. And he said the kids seemed like they knew him. And then at some point in the afternoon, you know, they see the three kids like leaving with this guy. And then the kids are never seen again. So, and, you know, they never found the kids' bodies. I mean, just over years. And it was really sad because... You know, they uh, this psychic came forward later on. I think he was Dutch. And he's like, oh, I, I have a vision that they're underneath this building, you know, near the Beaumont house. And the guy that had, that owned the building was like, I'm not tearing up my floor just because some psychic said that there's dead kids under there. And but the but the town. Yeah. But the townspeople like raised all this money. And we're like, please tear up the floor. They tear up the yeah. floor and there's 
there. So it, it was just a sad thing. And then later on, too, there were um, a series of letters that came to um, the Beaumont parents that were supposedly from Jane, the oldest daughter. And she was saying, oh, well, you know, we're staying with the man and he's taking care of us and he'll bring us back to you. And you should meet us at this particular spot. And of course, the parents go there with an undercover cop and, you know, the no one shows up. And then many, many, many years later, they find out that these letters were hoaxes. Like they caught the guy that did it. They fingerprinted. Uh, they fingerprinted the letters and they found the guy that did it who had been he had only been 14 at the time that he wrote what the letters. The world. And then later on, he admitted, oh, I felt really bad. I was like really stupid. I was a stupid teenager. What the hell was I thinking? I'm like, yeah, really? What the hell were you thinking? But they didn't, <laughs> yeah. you know, they, they didn't charge him. Uh, you know, because they said, okay, well, you were 14. What are you going to do? Um, but, you know, there there were some, uh, you know, I believe Derek Percy, who was a child killer, he was also a suspect in uh, the Beaumont children disappearance. Also, Bevan Spencer von Einam, who uh, was convicted of one of the murders in uh, South Australia, known as the family murders, where he would uh-huh. uh, basically he would kidnap young men and do quote unquote experiments on them. Um, it's pretty horrible. We did a show about that too. I'm just like, I didn't put a lot of those in the book cause most of those were solved right. or, or they know they're pretty sure that it was him, but he actually had like a loose contingent of dudes helping him. And they would do like horrible, horrible things to the, to these kids, like these teenage boys that they kidnapped, they would like cut them, like cut off their arms and like cut open their chests and like put the arms in there like in their chest, like cut their heads off and rope them to the torso. And it's just like, it was horrifying, a horrifying show. That was one of the most unpleasant (laughs) episodes we ever did, I think. But uh, yeah, but he was also a suspect in uh, the Beaumont children disappearance. There was also a disappearance that happened a bit later uh, of Joanne Ratcliffe and Kirstie Gordon, which they called the Adelaide Oval case. That was also a disappearance. Two girls were just at a Australian rules football match uh, with their families. They actually, the two kids didn't know each other, but they were just sitting by each other. And the older girl took the younger girl to the bathroom and then they never came back. And uh, someone saw them leaving the stadium with a guy and said they looked distressed. Um, And those two girls have also never been found. So, some people think that it's just the Beaumont children and the Adelaide Oval that are related. Some people think think all three of them are related. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of hard to say. It does seem like the Wanda Beach one, if Wolfgang Schmidt was correct in saying that he saw this teenage kid that was like a blonde kid with the gray pants and stuff, um, that was about the same age as the girls or maybe a little bit older, it does seem like it was that kind of thing. Like maybe it was an attempted rape and then they fought him and he got mad and you know, and he killed them and stuff. The other ones seem a little more nefarious just because they never found the bodies. And it almost seems like, I don't know, it seems like a more organized kind of thing, especially in the Beaumont children case, because, you know, the kids, you know, from what their family said, from what uh, witnesses said that knew them, they said, you know, these kids were not real uh, friendly. It's like, they, you know, they were wary of strangers. So it's like the fact that they were just hanging out with this dude you know, like he was their best bud, that kind of made them think that maybe this guy had been around them before and had like gained their trust maybe over 
a few visits to the beach because they went to the beach a lot. So maybe he got to know them and then one day decided, okay, today I'm going to kidnap them. And presumably he killed them because they never did find them. So I don't think anyone thinks they're still alive anywhere. And in the case of the Beaumont children, and I think this is true about some of the, some of the other cases too, like the police seemed like they could have been so much more focused if they hadn't had to deal with nonsense, like the psychic and the, this 14 year old that was writing these letters and like, it just, it just clouds everything up. That, and that's the one thing it makes me so sad. It's like, I know pretty much anytime you have a high profile crime, you know, particularly one as high profile as that you're going to get cranks. You're going to get false confessions. You're going to get all this kind of stuff. And I know that they're prepared for that, but still, it just seems like such a waste of time and a waste of resources. And I understand they have to look into everything because you never know, you know, what's going to be the tip, what's going to lead to it. But it just, God, it seems like so, especially in the case of that 14-year-old kid that was writing letters to the Beaumonts saying, oh, I'm Jane and I'm fine and the man is taking care of us and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I know you're 14, but damn, dude, it's like, what are you doing? Why would you even... That would never have occurred to me when I was 14 years old to do that. It's a horrible thing to do. And, you know, I'm sure he's grown out of it by now, but it's just you're you're just wasting so much time. You're wasting right. so much police time that they could have giving people false hope it, that, too. Yeah. And it's just like, that's so sad. And it's like so every time I hear that they did something, oh, because a psychic said to or we had to call a psychic. I'm like, please don't do that. It's just it just it never helps. And it just seems like it's a huge waste of everyone's time and energy. And like you said, it gets people's hopes up and it's just, it's never a good thing. I I feel like. Let's talk about the icebox murders. Yeah. Get some more, get some more like grimace faces from Rob and Serpiello. (laughs) Death metal. (laughs) This case was, this was super weird. This was a super weird case. So apparently this this old lady and this old man, this happens in Houston, Texas, obviously. So Fred and Edwina Rogers, and they live in this house in Montrose in Houston. And they're, I believe it was their nephew. And he had tried, been trying to call them for a few days and, um, you know, hadn't been getting any answer. So he thought that was kind of strange. So he called the police and he's like, could you please go and check on them? So the police go in the house and at first they don't see anything. They go in the house. And they're like, well, everything looks pretty copacetic. Um, they're like, they thought it was a little weird that there was like some kind of food left out on the table. Like they hadn't cleared the dishes or something. And they're like, yeah, it's a little weird, but you know, not too crazy. Um, but they didn't see anything else. They didn't see any blood or anything. Um, they open the fridge and they see uh, fresh cuts of meat, like on the shelves But again, they don't think much of anything. They don't think much of that either because they're like, well, it is Texas. You know, maybe they butchered a hog or whatever. So they're going to close. (laughs) Yeah, they're just like, oh, well, it's me. You know, or maybe they killed a deer or something. It's not the first thing you'd think of. So then the, the cop is just about to close the fridge door. And then he glances down at the crisper drawer on the bottom and sees two little severed heads peeking out at him. And these are obviously Fred and Edwina Rogers. And they've been, (laughs) yeah, there they are. They've been messed up pretty bad. I mean, obviously, because the meat, obviously, up on the shelves is also them. Um, (laughs) I don't mean to laugh. It's just, 
It's a. It is, it's I know, kind it's of just, a, re- a nervous reaction. You have to laugh. It's just like horrifying. It's it to me. It's like I yeah. I kind of laugh too, and I've gotten yelled at a couple times. Ugh. Like not not too many times. Like on the podcast, just be like, oh, it's not funny. I'm like, I know it's not funny. It's not. But <laughs> it's rough, all I can man. imagine. <laughs> it's it's, it's so horrifying yeah. that it's like, what are you gonna do? It's you know what I mean. What are you gonna do? It's just like it's yeah. so absurd too. Like it's because it, it's something that normal people are never going to do. They're never going to experience. So I think the absurdity of it is just like, it just causes that reaction. So I don't, you know, I don't have any problem with people like laughing at that kind of stuff. Cause I do too, even though it's horrifying, <laughs> but the fact that, I mean, the heads, you know, the Fred had actually, he had actually been uh, beaten in the head with a hammer. Like their eyes were gouged out. It's like some of their uh, internal organs and stuff they never found. They never found their genitals. Uh, whoever had killed them had like tried like cut up little pieces of them, like their uh, organs, and like tried to flush them down the toilet. It's like it was just a horrifying scene. Was there cannibalism so, involved? Yeah, so what was on the plates on the table? I That's don't what I was think gonna... so. <laughs> yeah, I don't think any of them were eaten. It just, it seems he weird was to just me. Saving like, it for later. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. Don't want those heads going like, bad, you know? Why would you keep it? That's what I want to know. It's, if you're going to go to all the trouble of cutting the bodies apart, trying to flush some of the pieces down the toilet, cutting them into, like, you know, steaks, essentially, and putting them in the fridge, putting the heads in the fridge, why would you go to all that trouble? It seems like, why don't you just throw them in the trunk and they'll, like, dump them out in the desert somewhere? You know, I don't understand why you'd go to that much trouble. Like you said, if you weren't going to do something with it, if you weren't going to eat them and particularly because the main suspect in the crime, and this is one of the ones where it's still technically unsolved, um, but they're pretty sure that Fred and Edwina were killed by their son, Uh Charles Rogers. They're not positive, um, but... They did find there wasn't a lot of evidence left in the house, but they did find a little bit of blood um, that had been cleaned. And then they found a little bit of blood and a little uh, saw like a keyhole saw that had a little bit of blood on it in uh, their son's room. Their son was in his 40s and a lot of their neighbors didn't even know he'd been living there because apparently he was like one of those super intelligent guys. He'd been in the Navy. Um, He was like a nuclear physicist. Um, he had worked for shell oil. He was like a seismologist or something. He spoke seven languages. So he was one of these super genius types. Now, evidently he'd had like a pretty successful career, but then like a few years before he had seemed to go, um, to have maybe like a nervous breakdown or something. And then he quit his job and then he moved in with his parents and became kind of a hermit and evidently, and I'm not entirely sure how they know this, But the story goes that he would just stay in his room in the attic and whenever he wanted something, he would write it on a piece of paper and then like push it out from underneath his bedroom door for his parents, like if he wanted food or if he wanted something else. But like I said, the neighbors didn't even know he was living there because even though he didn't have a job anymore, he would usually leave in the morning, leave leave the house when it was still dark, Mm -hmm. and then he wouldn't come back until late in the night. So he was gone all day doing who knows what. And people didn't know he was there. So the fact that they found this saw and kind of a little bit of trace blood evidence in his room led them to believe, you know, and the fact that he was also missing, um, led them to believe that he was probably the killer. Now, 
as you said, this case ostensibly uh, possibly has links to the Kennedy assassination. Mainly, this is because he was actually um, apparently acquainted with David Ferry, who was kind of one of the main players in the assassination. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether this is true or not, I'm not entirely sure, but there is an alleged connection between those two guys. So there is some speculation that he either knew about the assassination plot or that he was actually one of the guys on the grassy knoll. Um, And why he killed his parents was because they found out about it. Um, Again, I'm not entirely sure what would make you cut them up in such a horrific fashion, leave them there. Um, If that was all it was, I mean, you'd think it'd be much easier to just, you know, like I said, just from a practical standpoint, I'm a practical person. You know, if you were going to get rid of somebody because they knew too much, you know, hypothetically, you would think you would do it in the least messy way possible you know, in the way that would least be least likely to get you caught. You know what I mean? It's just like either poison them and dump them so no one would find them or just, you know, you don't want to leave blood all over the house. You don't want to like spend all this time like cutting up the body because apparently he had, if, if indeed he did do it, apparently he dismembered them in the tub and then had to like wash it all out because they didn't find any blood anywhere else in the house, maybe a little bit in the tub, maybe a little bit in his room. So he had obviously spent a great deal of time on this project, let's call it. So, you know, why would you do that? I don't know. So I'm not sure that I entirely buy the JFK connection because it just seems, I'm not Uh saying he didn't do it, but I'm not sure that that was his motivation. I think he might have just been a crazy person. So was he actually convicted of that? They never found him. So no, he wasn't. Wow. Um, yeah, he's still, they have no idea, uh, where he was. There were a few reported sightings of him. Uh, some people said, uh, that he was seen in Canada. Some people said he was seen in other parts of Texas. Uh, he was actually also seen in Honduras, allegedly, but they were actually never able to track him down. And there were later rumors that he might have been in hiding in Honduras and then got killed himself later on, like in an unrelated dispute like he might have got murdered himself Mm -hmm. but they've never been able to find him alive or dead which is why this crime is still unsolved because even though they're pretty sure he was the one that did it they don't know why and they don't know where he went afterward so bizarre (laughs) yeah but you know i had to include that one because i'm like even even if they're sure that that was who it was it's like that heads in the crisper that I have that has to be in the book. It just has to be. <laughs> That's like a testament to uh, the truth is stranger than fiction, right there. I mean, you you can't. Oh, yeah. They they do all kinds of horrible stuff in movies and on TV and stuff, but then you hear a story like that, and you're like, well, okay, well, wow, what the hell? That's that actually happened. They actually yeah. found this dude's parents' heads in the crisper uh, of all yeah. places. <laughs> like, if you would put that in top. a movie. <laughs> If you would put that in a movie before that really happened, no one would buy it. Exactly. Be like, yeah, right. Whatever. They're just like, oh, come on. That's a little over the top. But no, 
it happened. And I just, I, I kind <laughs> of liked, cause I was reading a lot of, uh, newspaper reports from it, you know, cause I try to find, you know, contemporary reports whenever I can. So I'm reading like newspaper reports at the time. And it's almost kind of like, I almost found it funny how matter of fact they were, the cop was just kind of like, yeah, I'm going through the fridge and I'm seeing all this meat and going, huh, look at all that meat. That's a little odd. And Oh, heads. You know what I mean? It was, it was just kind of like this. I'm sure they see horrible shit all the time, but not like wow. that. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty bad. Even, even for a hardened cop, that has to be, you know, that's that's going to be one you're going to remember and tell your grandchildren about many years later. I want to <laughs> ask a quick, quick question uh, before we get to another case. In all your research, do you see there being a, um, do you see there being less of these types of, you know, really extreme, brutal serial murders or things like this last case. Do you think there is like, does it seem like there's less of that in the more recent decades than the past? You know, it almost does seem like that to me. Um, I'm not sure. It's like, this is something I kind of think about a lot. And uh, mm-hmm. Tom and I have talked about this on the show a few times as well. I'm not saying that there's not horrific crimes now. There are obviously obviously still uh, serial killers running around. But it seems, and I, I'm not sure if it's just bias uh, because I'm, you know, researching particularly gruesome or particularly weird, like, unsolved cases. But it does seem like, you know, the early part of the 20th century, I mean, even going back as far as the early 1900s, up until about the 1960s, 1970s, it does seem like you get this really grotesque types of crimes. I mean, even in the early part of the 20th century in the United States, particularly in the Midwest, there were just like tons of crazy like axe murders where people would just like come in someone's house and just like wipe out a whole family, even little kids and stuff like with an axe. And I feel like you don't see as much of that nowadays. I could be totally wrong. Um, I know the crime rate in general has been going down probably since the 1990s, uh, more or less. But, yeah, it it really does seem like you don't see as many of these really outrageous, you know, crimes where whole families are wiped out or for no reason or, you know, people's heads turn up in refrigerators or things like that. You don't see as much of that. I don't think. Like I said, I could be totally wrong. I mean— it could be a bias just because I'm particularly focused on 20th century murders. And, you know, I haven't even gotten to volume three, which goes up to 1999. So we'll see how that goes. But, um, yeah, this is something we've talked about too. It almost seems like the old style serial killer, um, you know, the type that would, you know, stock, uh, college campuses or, you know, pick up women on the side of the street or pick up women hitchhiking and, you know, cut them all up and stuff. You don't seem to see as much of that nowadays. There are still serial killers, but they seem less, uh, I don't necessarily want to use the word splashy, but yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but do you know what I mean? They say yeah, sure. maybe yeah. ostentatious yeah, yeah. is a better word. Um, yeah. I wonder you how know, much of that has to do with like uh, modern forensics and people's yeah, that's fear. What, that's fear what we speculated before too. when you guys yeah. were on before. Yeah, just that they, you know, it's a pretty good chance you'll be caught if you create a big mess like that. Yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer yeah. is the last one that I can really yeah. think of, and that was over twenty-five years ago now. Yeah, that they exactly. Found all that. So, 
I feel like it might have something, and maybe I'm totally off base on this, but I feel like it might have something to do with the internet also. Because yeah. I, I feel like back in the old days, if you had these crazy, like these really weird uh, fetishes, for example, or if you had been raised in a particularly uh, horrific way, you were kind of isolated from others that had the same interests or had the same experiences. So you didn't have an outlet to express it. You couldn't, you know, share your feelings with other people who had gone through the same thing as you um, as easily as you can nowadays. So I feel like maybe some of these people with these strange sexual proclivities, maybe back in the old days, um, had they had access to the internet, had they ad- had access to pornography or to fetish websites or something like that, maybe they could have found someone who would have willingly participated in their fantasies without having to, um, you know, develop this kind of pathological, uh, you know, or pathology about it, and then have to go out and, you know, take victims just because they felt guilty because they thought they were doing something they weren't supposed to be doing. So I think yeah. actually the normalization of fetishes, the normalization of pornography um, and things of that nature is maybe in some ways a good thing because maybe there's maybe if there's less stigma about it, then you're not going to get these people growing up thinking that they're freaks or monsters and then acting out in that particular way. That's just a theory that I have. I'm not sure. Have like you I said, heard of the cannibal cop case? Like this I is a recent it, but thing. I, yeah, but I don't know all the details about it. So it was this NYPD cop and he yeah. had gotten caught on these chat boards talking about eating people. Uh-huh. And he's, and they, they fired him. Yeah. So it kind of kind of became like this kind of like uh, he he sued him to get his job back because he said, "Well, look, I'm not actually doing this. I'm just this is like an outlet for me to talk yeah. to other people that have these same fetishes, and it actually helps me not do actually do anything. I'm not actually doing anything, but I have like yeah. it's like a support group kind of thing. But yeah, that's exactly what I'm what I'm saying, and and, yeah. and this might be uh you know this also might be a controversial controversial thing to say too, but it does seems like pe- people with tendencies towards say pedophilia, um if they could find a support group or if they could even find you know some group that sort of indulged that but in uh, in a way where people weren't exploited like say you know animation for example. Um, then maybe that might help them not, you know, take their fantasies into reality. So in a way, I think that might be a good thing that people have that outlet nowadays. And that was something they didn't really have. I mean, particularly, like you said, in the case of Jeffrey Dahmer, I mean, he was a gay man who obviously was raised um, in a very self-loathing kind of way because he was raised to believe that that was wrong and that that was sick. And, you know, had he been raised more normally in a more, um, I guess, progressive or more open family, maybe he might not have turned out like that. If he had just been, you know, accepted the way he was and be like, you know, it's all right to be like that, you know, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Maybe it would have happened anyway, because I do think some people, um, are just born that way. And there's not a lot you can do to help them. But I do think that there's a lot of environmental factors as well. I do think most people, even if they have 
proclivities in that direction if they are raised in a supportive you know, way that doesn't make them feel like a monster and maybe helps them out in other ways that maybe they might not have to express their uh, feelings in that particular way. That's all very interesting. Yeah, that's a... Yeah, this is something we it. we actually talk a lot about this because we do so many true crime shows and I, you know, I've done so many cases and I, I tell Tom all the time, I'm like, you know, people think... It's funny because you always hear like older people. I'm, you know, I so I say older people. I'm kind of old too, but you know, older people are always kind of like, oh, back in my day, it was so much better. And I'm like, man, I did a chapter about you know 1952. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't better back then. It was, <laughs> it was really bad stuff going on back then. I was like, maybe you just didn't hear about it. Right. I think you just heard about it less. Back in the good old days when you could axe murder somebody and get away with it. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's what, maybe that's what they're implying. <laughs> the uh, well, we got to talk about this because we are in Nashville, and you've got a couple of Nashville cases in here. Yeah, yeah. This uh, this one. Okay, so this happened. The first one was Wanda June Anderson, and this happened in 1965. And this was in the area of Nashville. I don't know if it's still called that, but it used to be called Music Row. It's still there. It's still there? Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there were actually three little girls that happened in this series, but Wanda June Anderson was the first one. And this happened in July of 1965. She was 11 years old. And she was actually at her um, sister and brother-in-law's house. They had just um, gone out to dinner and gone to a bar. They were just having a night out, and they left her in charge of their kids. And they were only gone for a couple of hours, but they came home about a little past midnight. And they come home, and the door to their apartment is wide open. Um, Two of their little kids are crying inside their babies. And so they rush in and they're looking for Wanda June and they don't see her, but there's like blood on her bed. So they run out, they run around all looking for her around the neighborhood. And then they find, um, they find her out back, like only a few feet behind the apartment building. She's been raped and beaten in the head. And they think it's, uh, so they think it's an iron pipe. Uh, There was an iron pipe found near the scene. Uh, So they think she was beaten in the head with that. And uh, whoever killed her also took off her pajamas and like partially strangled her with them. So they think what might have happened, the little kids that were in the house, they were either sleeping or they were too little to testify about what had happened. They think that the assailant probably just snuck into the house either through a window or through the, uh, through an unlocked door or what have you um, knocked Wanda June unconscious without waking any of the other kids up and then dragged her out into the backyard and raped and hit her with the pipe. So, but the, it's just like, it was weird that the other kids didn't see anything. It was weird that none of the neighbors really saw anything, even though this was happening like right in the backyard of an apartment building but it was just this crazy and and there were a couple of other cases too um that happened around the same area where 
there were, and there was actually one, I can't remember the name of the little girl. I think her name was also Wanda, but she, um, she survived the attack, but she was actually dragged out of her window by a guy who then like tried to rape her and stuff. And she just started screaming and struggling. And then finally he just let her go and ran away. There was another crime that took place in the area. Um, I can't remember the little girl's last name, but I think her first name was also Wanda and she actually survived, but she actually got dragged out of her bedroom window by an assailant who tried to, uh, who tried to attack her. And she actually started screaming and struggling. And then, you know, he let her go and ran away. So she actually got away, but then there was another victim and, um, I think her name was Reba K green. And this one was kind of creepy because she was sleeping in a house with her whole family, like her parents, her siblings. And it was like the middle of the night, everyone is sleeping And apparently her older brother gets up and is walking down the hall to the bathroom or whatever. And he looks into Reba K. Green's room, which she shared with her sister. And he he thinks he sees like a silhouette, like against the window, like of a man. And he said uh, the brother's name was Edgar. And he said, I thought the man was laughing. Mm. So then the next morning, everybody gets up. And they find that Reba K. Green has just been stabbed to death in her bed. And the creepy thing was she was sleeping right next to her twin sister and her twin sister didn't wake up. So this person just climbs in the window or came in and unlocked. I think in that case, um, the glass on the back door had been broken like at some earlier time and they hadn't had time to have it fixed. And so I think that was the point of entry. But this guy just wanders into their house, just stabs a little girl in her bed and then leaves. So, you know, like I said, it's fifties and sixties. It's terrible, terrible things happening. Yeah. It's just horrible things. <laughs> there was another case we were talking about before we started the show. Um, but there's the girl just walking on the street and she just gets stabbed by a guy and he just walks off. Yeah, that was super freaky. That was, um, yeah, that was the Wendy Wolin case. And she was, let me see uh, if I can find, I have this written down. Yeah, what that page. wasn't in Nashville. That was in Yeah, that, that was, uh, I believe that was in New Jersey. Yeah. Let me see. It's on page 174. Here we go. Yeah, this actually happened in uh, New Jersey. It was March 8th. It was the middle of the afternoon. It was like four o'clock in the afternoon. It's this little girl, Wendy Wollen. She was seven years old. She's standing in front of her apartment building, which is kind of in an upscale neighborhood. Um, her mom had just gone to the parking garage and she was going to bring the car around and pick the little girl up and then they were going to go shopping and then they were going to pick up Wendy's older sister from school. So the little girl standing on the sidewalk waiting for her mom and this guy wearing a green coat and a gray fedora just walks past her and kind of ducks down like to her level. And then she thinks that he punched her in the stomach. So he just, and then he just keeps on walking. So she's, is kind of like, you know, doubles over in pain and a bunch of people are like, Hey, little girl, are you okay? She's like, that man punched me in the stomach. So they take her to, um, the fire station. So this is a creepy thing. She didn't even know, like, you know, she thought she'd just been punched in the stomach. So they take her to the fire station, which was right there. 
And then she's like, yeah, this guy just punched me. I don't know what the deal was. And they said she was totally coherent. It's like she gave her name and her age and her address and everything like with no problem. And then the firefighters were like, let me see, you know, your stomach. Let me see the wound. And they open her coat and she's been stabbed with a big hunting knife. And she's just bleeding everywhere. Jeez. So, yeah, at this point, they're like, okay, well, we can't, you know, the ambulance is not going to get here. So we have to have, so they just took her, they just put her in the police car and they took her right to the hospital. Um, but she did not make it. She bled to death, um, you know, less than an hour after the stabbing, she had died. Now they did find the knife later on. It was kind of like, I guess the guy had put it in the sheath and then he dropped it in the gutter and then... In the meantime, before anybody knew that the little girl had been stabbed, like a delivery truck had parked on top of it. So they actually didn't find it until the next day. But they did find the knife. And then, like, after the details about the case came out, there were, like, all these other really weird, all these other really weird stories that came out. Like, yeah, a guy wearing a green coat and a gray hat, he's like, he'd also been kind of running around the neighborhood. It's like he was banging on a bus door like acting really weird. Um, he actually punched this other teenage girl in the face and then ran away. Um, you know, some guys chased him, but then they lost him. Um, he had actually stabbed another little girl like in the, in the butt and then ran off. So this dude was just like running around the New Jersey streets, evidently just punching and stabbing little girls like <laughs> willy nilly. What in the and, world? New Jersey. Yeah, man, that's I what I mean. You. Like I said, 1966. This is like not the good old is, days. Yeah, the good old days. <laughs> I'm walking around stabbing people and punching little girls in the face. So you know they and, can keep their good old days. I'm just there saying. was no like motive. Was there any speculation that this could have been like a mafia thing? Maybe going after people's children. I mean, there was. Um, yeah, there was kind of like, well, uh, you know, I don't know how credible this is, but there had been another crime, um, uh, a year earlier in 1965. And this was a case, uh, Ann and Mae Rubenstein, they were like a mother and daughter and the daughter was actually killed in her house while the mother was at the grocery store. And then the mother came home during the attack. And so the killer killed her as well. Now it later came to light that um, Wendy Woolen had just moved to town like a brief time before and had lived with her grandparents. And her grandparents' last name was also Rubenstein, although the two families were apparently not related. Now, there was some speculation at the time that Wanda's, or Wendy, or uh, Wendy rather, her that her grandfather had some kind of mob connection. I'm not sure how... Um, you know, how well-known that is, or if that's just some kind of hypothesis, but, um, and they're speculating that maybe the, the murder of the first two Rubensteins, the mother and daughter, maybe that was a case of mistaken identity. Like maybe the hitman went to the wrong house. And then a year later, you know, he actually went and killed, you know, the granddaughter of the, of the original person that he was supposed to be targeting. Although, as I said, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's like, that doesn't seem like a mob thing. The the mm. way that guy was acting, that seems more like a crazy delusional person thing because he, right. he just seemed to be just randomly punching and stabbing people running around the street, you know, <laughs> of well, his running around the streets of Elizabeth, New Jersey. 
<laughs> One final question before uh, we end the interview. Okay. What is up with London, with London, Ontario? <laughs> and what the hell is going on with Iowa? Yeah, this is something that I, okay. Until I started researching this book, I didn't know anything about this whole London, Ontario thing. Apparently there were so many murders happening in the sixties and seventies that they called it murder city. And Michael Artfield, who is a criminologist and he has a, uh, he has that TV show. I can't remember what it's called right now, but, um, but he actually wrote a book about it called murder city. And that's where I got a lot of the uh, information for, for this book when I was talking about some of the cases but the creepy thing about it is that there were so many murders. There were some of like young girls. There were some of young boys. There were some of teenage girls. There were some of older women. There were some. So some of them seem to be linked and then some of them don't. And there's speculation that there could be as many as three serial killers, maybe more um, operating in the area at the time. Why London, Ontario at that particular time? Who knows? Uh, some people have speculated that it might be just because, you know, the town had formerly been kind of isolated, even though it was kind of a big city and, you know, a highway had just opened up. So maybe there were new opportunities for serial killers to be driving through the area and be like, oh, look, new hunting grounds or something like that. But there were just so many murders. I mean, there were. Um, I think the first one that I wrote about my in my book was uh, Jacqueline Dunleavy, who was um, she was a teenager and she just got murdered. She got raped and murdered and she was just left in this rather busy parking lot in the snow. And the killer had posed her as though she was on a morgue slab and then had stuffed a packet of pink uh, facial tissues down her throat. You know, which kind of reminded me of Silence of the Lambs a little bit. Uh huh. Yeah. And to and add couple- about her, she worked at like some like sleazy place where like they watched stag films. And yeah. there was so like they- all these like teenage girls that worked there with yeah. all these older guys that would come in and watch porn. They would come in and watch porn in the weird. back. Just like what? <laughs> yeah. It was just, it was a crazy, it was a crazy thing. And like, I, and there were a couple um, of little boys too, Frankie Jensen and uh, Bruce Stapleton, yeah. Scott Lichman, a um, couple of younger boys that were either out fishing or just doing regular little boy things. And um, then later were murdered and they would find them like in rivers, like with no pants and things like that. It was just, it was just a crazy kind of, and it actually reading about that. And I actually bought Michael Arnfield's book because I was so fascinated by why this particular city, you know, had this, had at least three serial killers running around for whatever reason. Um, and I kind of got really interested in like geographical murder profiling. Like why are there some areas? Because when I was researching this book, I mean, yeah, to an extent, like a lot of the crimes seem like a random here, there and and everywhere, but there did seem to be repeating patterns. And I don't think it's simply a case of, oh, there's one crazy person running around doing all these because some of them were clearly unrelated. But it did seem like, you know, there must be some kind of synergy between, you know, here's the specific place and the specific time And for whatever reason, some kind of strange thing happens and all of a sudden people are committing crimes, you know, and particularly messed up ones. 
because a lot of the ones that happened in London, Ontario were messed up. And the same thing happened in Iowa. I'm not sure a couple of the Iowa murders, um, particularly the, the Waverly three, they think those girls were probably related, but a lot of those crimes to me did not seem related. And Mm -hmm. some of them definitely weren't because some of them I suspect were like in one case, um, like the case of Dorothy Kuhn, they think it might've been her ex-husband. And there was another case too, where I think the ex-husband might've been involved or might've hired hit hit men to kill her. But I, I don't know if it's just because there were more murders going on in Iowa at that time, or if there's just, uh, you know, better record keeping in Iowa, maybe. So maybe there's some kind of bias there because there actually is a really good blog called Iowa Unsolved Murders. And uh, there's a woman that writes for it and she's kind of run down like all the cases from the past century. And I use her a lot for her research. Um, but so it might just be the case of, well, there's someone in Iowa that's keeping track of all these and other states. They're just like, well, we either have so many that we don't bother. Or we don't bother writing them down. So that might be the case, too. It might just be a kind of case where we're keeping better track of them than other states do. So, so I don't know, but I am kind of interested in the whole geographical aspect of crime now. And that's, that really didn't happen until I got into the London, Ontario thing. And I got a bunch of family in Iowa. I better not do that. Ancestry.com. <laughs> <laughs> or should you maybe? <laughs> yeah, maybe you should. They might, one of them might be the Zodiac. You never know. <laughs> you might solve like some of Jenny's cases in this book. You know, you know. I know exactly. And then, you know. <laughs> Be less cases for me to write about because you'll solve some of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jenny, uh, it's been awesome speaking to you about this, and you're going to hang out with us for a little bit. We're going to do a Patreon section with you and Tom, but tell everybody where they can get the book and also contact you and tell everybody about your awesome podcast, 13 O'Clock. Okay. Uh, the book is available on amazon.com. It's actually available at the moment in print and ebook format. I am recording the audiobook format, uh, at the moment. So that should be out in a few weeks if you'd rather have audiobook. And also you can visit my website, which is just www.jennyashford.com. It's got links to all my books. It's got links to the podcast. It's got links to my graphic design work. It's got pretty much everything that I do on there in one spot. And if you'd uh, like to listen to our podcast, we usually do um, we do some paranormal stuff. We do a lot of true crime, just unsolved mysteries type stuff. Anything that we find interesting, um, we have we do a YouTube show uh, at thirteen o'clock podcast. We also just do an audio only, which you can pro- I think you can find on U- on iTunes and other places. Uh, we also opened up a BitChute channel. Um, so if you, that just has like a limited number of episodes, but you can check that out too. But so just Google 13 o'clock podcasts. We're all over the place. I have us all over the place. There's blogs and everything. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jenny. Stay on the line for us. And guys, we're going to close this section out on Conspiracy Normal. Say something, Rob. All right, we're back. 
<laughs> yeah. So, uh, pretty grim topic. Sorry for all the background laughter. It's a nervous reaction, as Adam said earlier. Very much and is. Murder, I also murder, wanted to reiterate murder, that murder, that's... Murder, 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 murder. That's where... <laughs> it's where humor and laughter comes from, uh, you know, originally as like a, a... When we were like barely out of the tree monkey tribal species, like it was a way to convey to the rest of your tribe that this is a horrible thing, but we're all safe from it. Let's laugh. That's, that, you know... These are horrible, horrible things that have happened to people that really happened. Yeah. Part of that is because it's so unfathomable. It, exactly. Like it's you, you can't, can't help but just you can't process it. So mm-hmm. that that's the knee jerk reaction is yep. to like Yep. Early on, uh in the in the podcast, I remember this is back in the Luke days, where Luke was talking about we were talking about clowns. This is even before you even joined us, Rob. And we were talking about clowns, and he was talking about how, like, he had a girlfriend whose stepfather or something was was employed as a clown, and she was raped by him, and he, like, gave this little titter. Like, no, this little, that, this that, little, was, that was... Were you there? Yeah, that was one of my earliest oh, okay, episodes. Okay, okay. I remember that. I can't remember whether it was before you, you joined us or not, but I remember just somebody just... And I and I had to go back and listen to it because somebody just had heard that and said, I can't believe you would laugh about rape. You know, and I listened to it and I'm like, that's not what happened. He didn't laugh. Right. You know, it's just, uh, it's, it's sometimes that's just an automatic reaction to something that is just horrific. Yeah. I mean, it's. So, well, you know, because we're. No other creatures that we know of, like, laugh. You know, but they're not processing things the same way we are. We can understand like the extreme depths of all these situations, and in order to to grasp all that and cope with it and keep on existing, like that's the mechanism that's in place to keep us sane. I agree. Is the laughter? Yep. Yeah, I absolutely like, I, agree. I have a friend who's a a, a vet, and uh, he was with me when I got injured real bad. Uh-huh. And I'm like bleeding, my legs cut open, and he was just like laughing his ass off. <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing now because it's Cause like we're all safe from it. Yeah, yeah, but like he's like, oh, I'm sorry, man. I'm just used to, I guess, like even in combat and stuff. I mean, it's just automatic reactions to extreme situations sometimes, and you know, humor is real complex. Yeah, so you know, it's very psychological. It's very automatic as well. So, any thoughts about that, Sergio? We're gonna about try to show. Yeah, we're gonna try to track down these places where these murders oh, happen in Nashville. Nashville. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty scary. Just we should see if there's more than that. And do a whole episode on it. Just the yeah. uns- unsolved murders of Nashville. Guaranteed that there has to be. Oh, right? sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could do some research and find out if there's a somebody that could talk about it, or B, we could just. Find a research and talk about it ourselves. So yeah, I think it'd be fun. I don't know. I mean, at this point, it's like I don't. I guess I'm so desensitized. Nothing really shocks me as far as the depravity that human beings can uh, engage in. You know, I don't really. Uh, well, uh, dude, butchering his parents and putting their heads in the crisper shocked me a little bit. Yeah, like, I never yeah. heard a <laughs> true story quite like that one. That was quite extreme. Yes. So. Very, very sick, sick people. All right. Well, 
I think that's where we're going to call it for now. Um, it's a crazy world, folks. Watch your back. It absolutely is. Next time, I'm going to do a roundtable. I've got this scheduled. I've got a few people coming in because we're going to talk about a movie, a documentary film called Hunt for the Skinwalker. And I was on a little roundtable with Soraya and Joshua Cutchin. Of course, they will be joining us. And a couple other guys will be joining us, too. And uh, we talked about this and some of the, you know, what's going on with this. But I also want to try to get into the story of the hunt for the skinwalker as well. Um, I'd love to get Jeremy Corbell on, the uh, director, but I don't think that he is available. So um, I think that these guys are all pretty familiar with the story, and they'll be able to, to help us with that. So. Sounds like a great show. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Rob, tell everybody where they can find our Patreon, which we just did a Patreon episode with Tom and Jenny, which yeah, was did. a wild ride. Yeah, uh, which is why we're a little uh, <laughs> a little tired at the moment. Yeah, it was a long one. That was that was awesome. Um, love both those guys. Uh, yeah, if if you want to check out our bonus episodes, we've got I don't even know how many up there. Lots, lots of them. Uh, go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal and you can subscribe. There's various different tiers. It helps us, you know, cover the cost of the show. Because uh, we, we do spend a lot of money on hosting and websites and equipment and all that. Um, and if you don't want to subscribe to something, have a monthly bill, you can do a one-time donation through our website at conspiranormal.com. And if you want to help support the show, but you don't want to spend any money doing it, a great way to do that is a five-star review or just tell your friends about us and share the show. Absolutely. And we appreciate any support you guys can, can send our way. Um, we got to, I've got some good guests scheduled for the, for October. I'm really looking forward to it. And, uh, this was a great way to kick off October. I think so. Yeah. It's kind of like human based horror. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of horror. Yeah. 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 It is the season. A, A ton of it. So th- this is going to make uh, all the paranormal stuff that we'll probably end up talking about sound tame in comparison, I think. <laughs> right. Because people are way more scarier than ghosts, man. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> way oh, yeah. more scarier than anything. And aliens. <laughs> it's, people are frightening. And on that note, guys, tune in next time for Conspiranormal.
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.